so this is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And so uh, when we talk about Advent, um, depending on your background, maybe that's familiar to you or as we come into Christmas season. But what we mean by Advent when we say that word is we mean arrival or, or coming. And, and so when we talk about Advent, we often are talking about the arrival of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus at Christmas uh, as God uh, came and entered into time and space and and took on flesh and dwelt among us. But when we start to talk about Advent, we we mean not only Jesus's first coming, but because of what he did in his first coming, we also are looking ahead to his second coming. And so we live in this tension of both. And so as we look back and we remember Jesus coming in and what that means, we also are looking ahead to his second coming because of what he accomplished in his first coming. And so what we're going to do is a short series over the next couple of weeks uh, leading up to the end of the year is we just can stop and consider the birth of Jesus from these different perspectives. And so this morning, uh, as Dan read for us, the, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, it's almost like I, I couldn't stop smiling as he read because it's like this morning he said, what's the reading? And I said, it's, it's Matthew one, one to 17. And he went, really? Like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, will, I will do it. I will faithfully serve by reading God's word. And so um, I know as we read through it and I said, I couldn't stop smiling. We start to read through and he say, and, and Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and your eyes can start to glaze over or or maybe in your Bible reading plan, you can kind of go, yeah, I'm going to skim down to like verse 17 and just keep moving. And we can do that at different times. But I just want to remind you, as we think this morning, uh, first, all of God's word is inspired and it's profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and and leading us to see him more fully. And that includes even the genealogies. Even if sometimes our eyes start to glaze over and it's kind of hard to, to fight our way through that. But then I'd also follow up just by saying, as we think about it this morning, there's a great deal that we can learn and glean from looking at this text together. And so we're going to spend some time looking at this genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. And there's three main things I just want to highlight to you in this as we as we work our way through that he's saying and he's kind of calling out to us and alerting us to as we kind of slow down and really think about what he's saying. And so the first thing, let's jump into Matthew chapter one, Matthew one and verse one, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And if you know anything about Matthew's gospel, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And so they would have been well aware of the Old Testament and these names and a lot of who these people were. And so as he's writing, Matthew, as a Jew, writing to a Jewish audience that's that's showing uh, that he believes that Jesus is the long expected Messiah that they were looking for. And he starts with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he calls out two of the biggest figures in all of the Old Testament that all of his audience would have known. And if you know the Old Testament, you know the Bible at all. Uh, Abraham shows up in in Genesis chapter 12. But if we're thinking chronologically, if we go back almost 2000 years before the birth of Jesus, that that Abraham is there roughly 2000 years. And so he goes back and he calls out David and Abraham. And then in David, he lived about a thousand years before Jesus. And he was the great king in Israel. And there are two pillars that they would have all known and understand. But the first thing I want us to consider as we think about him saying David, son of David and the son of Abraham, is that he's showing us God's timing is not our timing. God is not slow in keeping his promises. 
And so he's alerting us to these two men that carried with them great promises about the coming Messiah and who he was and who he would be. And so if we go back and we start to think about that a little bit, let's start chronologically. I know he says the son of David and then the son of Abraham, but Abraham came first chronologically speaking. So let's think about what he's why he's calling that out right now. Both of them you will see in the uh, genealogy as you work through, but he puts that heading over it. Son of Abraham and son of David before he says anything else. And part of the reason he does that is if we go back to to uh, Genesis chapter 12, and we start with Abraham, who lived 2000 years before God made this incredible promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he reiterates later in chapter 15 and chapter 18 of Genesis. But he says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to pick up your stuff and move and I want you to go where I tell you to go. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a great number of descendants and I'm going to give you this land. And then he says, and I'm going to bless the world through your descendant. The word he uses is seed, but it's the same idea. I'm going to bless the world through your descendant. And that promise to Abraham was about the Messiah, about Jesus. And Abraham didn't understand all of that at that time, but God tells him that. If we go back even a little further in Genesis, we get to why God is saying that and what he's doing. In Genesis chapter 3, God has made all the world and everything in it. And he's made man to be in a relationship with him, to love him, to walk closely with him. But in Genesis 3, we see man rebel. Man sins, that is, they ignore God and the world he created. And in doing so, they break the relationship with God. And as such, sin enters the world and it gets into everything and it causes all sorts of problems. All the things that we see and struggle with today. As all those things come flooding in right there in Genesis 3, God says to Eve... The woman, the very first woman, he says, there's going to be one that's going to come through your seed, Eve, that will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent being Satan and represents all of evil and struggle and pain and hardship in the world. And God makes that promise to Eve. But then in Genesis 12, he reiterates that promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And so the whole of the Old Testament is building with this anticipation of the coming one that's going to fulfill these promises. And so when you start to read this genealogy of Jesus and he was born in this way and this is who he was and where he came from, Matthew starts with this. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And his audience would have known, oh, God's going to bless the world through the seed of Abraham. And it would have been very clear what they were, what he's saying here as he says that this is the Messiah. This is the coming one. This is the one that we've waited thousands of years for. But it's not just uh, Abraham. He also says the son of David and the son of Abraham. And again, if you know your Bible and you know and you go back and you start to look at these promises again, his audience as a Hebrew, a Jewish audience would have known very well. These stories wouldn't have had to be reminded of these things. But there's this great promise to Abraham. But there's also a great promise to David, what we call the Davidic covenant. Let me remind you, covenant just means promise. And so the promise to David Son of Abraham, son of David. And the promise to David was this. It's uh, Nathan, the prophet Nathan says this uh, to David in 2 Samuel in chapter 7. And he says this to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And so what he says to David and what he tells him is when you lie down and when you die, your son after you is going to build a temple for me. And he's talking about Solomon, his son that will come after him, who will build the temple. And he's talking about that. But then he says in your son and he's going to build this house for my name. But then he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He adds this part to the promise that he gives to David. Yes, your son's going to follow you. Yes, he's going to build my temple. He's going to make my name great. He's going to do these things. But I'm also going to establish his throne forever. And then in the end of chapter seven of Second Samuel, he says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so like uh, with Abraham, the audience would have known what he's talking about when he says son of David and son of Abraham. I'm going to bless the world through your seed, Abraham. And then I'm going to bring one that is going to establish his kingdom and his throne will know no end. It will be forever and eternal. And so Matthew's saying that's who this Jesus is. The one who's come to bring uh, the great promises that God has made not only to David, but to Abraham. And it goes back thousands of years. And so they had been long waiting for this Messiah, this conquering one that would come. And he's telling them that's who this Jesus is. And so you start with that right at the beginning. And the thing I want us to consider today when we read that and when we think about it is we come into the season and we say we want to be expectant as we come up to to Christmas and celebrating Jesus and his coming and his arrival and the excitement that comes with it. But sometimes it's hard to be expectant when we say uh, not only his first coming, but his second coming. Each year we we go through this and we do it again and we we're excited to celebrate it. And each year we come back and Jesus hasn't returned yet. We're still expectant and we're still waiting, but it can seem like a long way away. And so I just want to remind you that God is not slow in his promises. And that when Matthew wrote this down and he said, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, when he wrote down the son of Abraham, Inspired by the Spirit as God had him write that down. The time from Abraham to the time Jesus came is just about the same amount of time from the time Jesus has come to where we are now. That the God of uh, these promises, these great promises is still working and he's still active and he's not slow to fulfill his promises. And so as we step into the season, we want to have a great expectancy. Let's remember that the God who did these things with Abraham and David And all this list of people and the way he's working is still working today. And we should be having that same expectancy as we come into the season, remembering what he's done in Jesus, but what he will do when he returns. And so the first thing when we think about the genealogy is just this God's timing is not our timing, but God is not slow in keeping his promises. But the second thing I want you to consider is when you start to read this genealogy and you start to look at the way that David starts this story, right? So I'm sorry, with the way Matthew starts his gospel, Matthew was one of Jesus's disciples who was with him, who who saw what he did, who then writes down what God showed him and taught him and inspired. And he writes all this down. He's telling you all these things. And he starts his his story with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which is not surprising in the ancient world. That's the way you often would start. Genealogies were very important. Saw people and your your parents and your line and all those things were really important in that time. And so it's not surprising he starts that way. But what I want you to alert you to is that he doesn't start with uh, once upon a time. 
He doesn't start in a land far, far away. He starts with real people that were really on this earth and walking and struggling and going through life. And he roots and grounds the beginning of the birth of Jesus in history. Because this is a historical fact of a real person who walked on earth and did these things. And it's not like we sometimes hear, well, yeah, the story of Jesus is great. And maybe spiritually there's some things to take away, but it doesn't really matter if he lived or died or if he came. And what the gospel writers and what the disciples of Jesus would say, no, it absolutely matters that he came and he lived and he roots and grounds it in history. And he starts with that genealogy. And I want you to think about that for just a second. Let your imagination think about a genealogy and going back from generation to generation to generation and how it kind of roots you to the past. Uh, I mentioned maybe a a month ago or so that uh, uh, my son Asher and I used to like to look at the Ancestry.com thing. And we'd look at like our, our line of people. And it was real interesting to see this. If you've ever played with it, you can go on there. And there's all these records that you can connect back to. And it searches all these things and it makes these connections for you. And it's kind of exciting when you get into it. But after I mentioned that like a month ago, I re-upped my thing and I went back and I was like, I want to look at that again. And, and what I saw as I looked at it, and I just even this week, I was looking at it as I was thinking about this genealogy. And my dad's side, my dad, going back, Morris's, go all the way back. You could trace them all the way back to Wales in the 1300s. I thought that was really cool. But they used to spell Morris, M-A-W-R-R-H-Y-S, Morris, right? And then somewhere in there it got changed. And the, the first Morris was born uh, in the United States in the 1620s, which is pretty cool to think about. And so all this stuff, and you go back in 20 generations. Uh, one of the things I found is my fifth and seventh great-grandfathers were pastors, both of them named Philemon in North Carolina. I thought that was kind of cool. Right. And start to read through and you see all these things and then your your mind starts to go and you go, man, what was it like to live in North Carolina in 1700s or the early 1800s? Or what was it like to live in Wales in 1300? And you start to make all these connections and your mind starts to go through it. Or, or my mom's side, her her mother going back, went all the way back to the 1600s in Germany. And, and uh, my great, great, whatever grandfather was baptized into the Lutheran church in 1620. I don't know if you know your church history. I thought that was kind of exciting. Uh, Martin Luther died in like 1560, right? So we're talking about like 60 years after Martin Luther and the Lutheran. That's old school Lutheran, right? That's, that's old school reformed, right? Like the, the Reformation and those things. And so start to hear that and think about it and the connections and kind of the grounding in your history. And then I read this genealogy and what Matthew's saying is that these are real people at real time and you follow them back and what they must, their lives must have been like and who they were. And he's saying Jesus came through these people, that God invaded time and space and came in history and that God has broken into history and he's done something that changes everything. And the way that you respond to what he's done in Jesus is the basis on which you will be judged. That's the claim of Christianity, that it really matters that Jesus came in time and space, right? Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's not just some ideas that you take and you apply to your life and tries to make things better. 
It's something that Jesus has come to do for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And so his actual coming and living and dying and being raised again, everything we believe hinges on that. And so Matthew starts with rooting us, rooting and grounding us in this genealogy with these actual people in this real place in history. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, the same thing that I think Matthew's getting at as he gives us this genealogy when he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. He's talking about the resurrection. But for the resurrection to take place, Jesus had to actually come and live and die and be raised again. And so when we consider this genealogy, God is not slow in his promises, but also I want us to consider that it's rooted and grounded in history because it actually happened. And for it to be good news, it had to actually happen. And so when we think about that uh, and we say that, I said just a second ago, God has broken into history and he's done something in history that changes everything. And you will be judged on the basis of how you respond to it. And that's the claim that we we hold to. That Jesus is the one that's come to do what we could never do for ourselves. And we desperately need Jesus. That is only in him that can fix all the issues. All the promises that God made in the Old Testament find their culmination in Jesus. But as I say that, I'm aware that when we say that, that the, you will be judged on the basis of what Jesus did and what you do with him. That's very offensive in our culture. Right? To say that. Because right? today people are fine, most of the time, are fine if you say, uh, I believe in Jesus and I believe he was the son of God. And they're like, well, that's great for you, right? But if you say he came in history and he literally lived and died and raised again, and what you do about that determines your fate, they don't like that. Maybe you don't like that, right? That's okay if you're here today and you go, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I'm cool with saying it's good for you and it's good for me, but to tell somebody else that. But let's be clear what he's doing when he roots and grounds us in history. He's saying this is the truth of what happened in this time and in this place. And God came and he literally did this. It's the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if you read Luke's gospel, he'll start the same way. I went and talked to eyewitnesses and I'm telling you what happened and what we saw and what God did. It's a similar thing that he's doing with grounding us. In this genealogy. And so I would just say if you're offended by that or you know people or you come up against people that are offended by that thought. That this actually happened and the way you respond to it is of the utmost importance. And people go, no, no, you can't say that. I would just remind them and maybe you if that's your objection. Is that when you tell people they can't say that. You're doing the same thing that you don't want them to do. You're now evangelizing them and telling them the way that they should hold to their Christianity. You can't say that. What you're really saying is you can't follow Jesus. Because Jesus tells us to go and proclaim the truth of who he is. And I'm not saying you, you, you argue over that or you fight that, but it's, it's something that we have a blind spot that we often miss when we start to do that. Well, I'm being really open and I'm being tolerant to everyone. But what you're really doing is you're being intolerant to those that are seeking to follow Jesus fully. But the second thing I'd say is if we have an objection about that or we struggle with that, 
When we come to this time at Christmas and we talk about the Christmas spirit, and we look at the world and the things that are going on and the struggles that are there. Don't we desperately want this to be true? Even if you're not sure. Don't you want it to be true that the God of the universe has entered into time and space to fix all that's broken? To bring joy, but not just joy, but to deal with sin and death and the struggles and the pains. And I'd say, I, I think we do. And I think our culture overwhelmingly wants to believe that. I was talking to my brother, uh, Jeremiah, this, this year at, at Thanksgiving. And we were talking about movies and different things. And one of the things that came up was Marvel movies, right? You know what I mean when I say Marvel movies? Like Marvel comics, the superheroes. Like they've made tons and tons of those movies recently. And uh, I don't know how we got off talking about that. And Jeremiah just said, uh, I really love that Marvel's taken off like it is. He said, I like those movies. And I said, why? What? And he said, well, if you stop and think about it, he said, every Marvel movie is the same. Uh, people are in desperate need. Something big, bad uh, happens and it's scary and it's hard. And then this hero comes to do what they can't do for him. He said, it's the gospel. And people desperately want to cling to the truth that there's one that's going to come and fix things. But yet what we're saying is that's happened, that that is true, that there's a longing under that that's deeper than just an exciting movie. There's something more to that, that we're longing for something more. And that's exactly what Matthew's saying, that God is bringing together in fruition all that he has promised that he would. And he's going to fix all of it. And he's saying for that to happen, God had to literally physically enter into time and space. And so when we read this genealogy, the second thing I want you to consider is that this happened in history. These are real people in real time. And, and in the first century, there was a real man that came and walked on this earth named Jesus. And it's not just a story that starts once upon a time, but it starts with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But then the very last thing I want you to consider this morning is that when you start to read through this genealogy, and I said just a second ago in the ancient world, that makes sense that if Matthew's writing this gospel about Jesus and he's telling you about who he is, that he would start with his genealogy. That's what they often did in this time. Right? It was almost like your resume of sorts. Uh, that's the way you built up who a person was. You go, well, his father was so-and-so and the father of so-and-so. And they go back and they're telling and they're alerting you. Right. And, and so you see that here. They're alerting you that this is the son of Abraham and the son of David, those promises of God's. And we can trace Jesus all the way back. But when you start to read closely and you start to look at this genealogy, this resume of sorts, suddenly there's some some things that start to come in that are a little bit uh, almost out of place. I mean, it makes sense when we, we tell the good, right? Say son of David and son of Abraham. Or, or I just told you as I, as I trace my genealogy back, right? Two pastors in, in North Carolina and, and back to the, the Lutheran church. And, and I alert you to those things. Uh, what I didn't mention is there's some people in my family that were in the KKK. We don't usually lead with that. Right. That's, that's not the things we normally alert people to. Right. You, I mean, I, I hope it's obvious why. I mean, that's horrific to think about that. That that was in just a few generations ago in our family. Hatred for people that are made in God's image and his likeness. We don't usually lead with those things. 
But when you start to read through this genealogy, you start to see things that Matthew includes that you go, what? What? Why would he say that? Why would he bring those things in? And the, the first one I would say is you start to read through and there's actually five women in this genealogy. Not that there's anything wrong with including women in a genealogy. It's just out of place for the time. In the ancient world, women, uh, their voice or their their witness didn't really count for anything. And and that's just a a byproduct of the time and what was going on. I'm not in any way saying that's a good thing. But when you start to read through, normally genealogies was the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. But in here, you start to have different women that come into it. You have Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. And suddenly you see that this genealogy is a little different than the way ancient genealogies normally were. And he starts to include these things, these women that their word didn't count for anything. Didn't really matter who the mother was as it would go in the society of the time. But Matthew includes them. And what you start to see is a population that was largely ignored in genealogies. And God brings in these women. And the Messiah says, I am proud to call them part of my family. What a beautiful picture that is. How wonderfully empowering that is that he would say Rahab. And he would talk about these women that are there and Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba. And he would name them as part of his genealogy. But it goes beyond not just women, but you start to look. And let me remind you that it was the promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation and all these people. and I'm going to bless the world through your seed. Right. Abraham, the, the, the father of the Jews, a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience. But then you start to read through and all of a sudden there's all these different foreigners in there that were not Jewish, that were Gentile. And they would read that and go, wait, what? You're trying to convince us that this is the king of the Jews, but yet you're pointing out that there was uh, Ruth from Moab and Rahab, who was a Canaanite. And you start to read through these things and you go, what's going on here? Why would he point those things out? Why would he bring those things in? The people with the wrong pedigree and the wrong nationality and the wrong race. <laughs> God is showing you that they're all part of his family. That Jesus counts them as part of his family. When he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. It was never just about a certain people in a certain place. I'm going to bring through this line the one who's going to bring all people in. Every tribe, tongue and nation, wherever you've come from, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus and what he came to do. And so not only do you have women and you have foreigners, but as you start to look at the list of people and you start to dig into who they were and where they came from and what they were like, you have Rahab. Rahab, who you see in Joshua chapter two, who was not only a woman, she was not only a Canaanite that lived in a civilization that practiced child sacrifice. It was horrible things in their worship of idols. She was a prostitute. But she was a prostitute who helped the men who came to spy out the land and said, I've heard of your God. And we know who he is. We've heard of his fame. And you see this woman who's a prostitute included into the family of God and what Jesus has done. And he counts her as part of his family. Are you reading verse six? And it says, and 
uh, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. If you know your Bible, you know that story from Second Samuel chapter 11. Who was Uriah's wife? But Bathsheba. The one that David would look down and see bathing and then take her for his own. Have an affair with her. Have this child and then have her husband killed. So he could cover up his mess and take this child as his own. And, and what Matthew does is he calls out that they're part of the family. These women and these foreigners and these people that you would go, wait a second. Why would you include them in the line of the Messiah? And, and in fact, a woman like uh, Bathsheba or Rahab, or as you start to look down, they would be what the Old Testament called ritually unclean, not fit to come into worship. But yet Jesus calls them as part of his family. And all of this goes back to highlight the second point that all of this is grounded in history that Jesus had to come. And we we don't profess to believe that a God came down and gave us some rules to live by and we try our best. And if we do well enough, we get accepted. We believe that Jesus came to do what we couldn't do for us. And because he's done what we couldn't do for us and he takes our sin upon himself. That by grace through faith we're welcome into his family. So do you see what that means? It doesn't mean, uh, it means that it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a foreigner or you're the wrong color or the wrong nationality or whatever that looks like. Or where you've been or what you've done that in Jesus you can be part of God's family. That there is no one that is beyond the reach of what God is doing and the way he's working. And so let me just remind you a couple of things. One, personally, if you struggle with wherever you are right now, God couldn't forgive me of this or that. Or you have struggles truly believing that God's grace is sufficient for you. Read through that genealogy and look at the people that God counts as part of his family. It's because it's all what Jesus has done and nothing else. But then the second thing I would say to you is we think globally, big picture, and you read through that God counts people of every tribe, tongue, nation, background, place, all these things. Who cannot be part of God's family? And the answer is no one. There's no one beyond God's reach. There's no one that's bigger than his grace. And we can celebrate that in Jesus and what he's done. And so that greatly erases the lines that we want to draw. And the ways we want to think about things. And the people who are in and the people that are out and those that we want to help and those we don't want to help. It erases all of that because at the foot of the cross, we're all leveled. And so we see that even just in this genealogy. That's our savior that we that we uh, worship. It's the one who came from all of this. And it's all because of what he's done and nothing else. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that we proclaim that you did come in time and space that you came in the middle of nowhere born to teenage parents in the in the dirt and the mess and in poverty and places far from here but you came that we could be invited back into your family and we thank you for that we pray that we would remember uh, that we would live each moment out of the understanding that it's all because of your grace and what you've done for us and nothing else. And so I pray that you would help us to rest in that. I pray that it would transform the way we see people. 
each and every person that comes into our life are made in your image and they desperately need to hear the truth of who you are and what you've done. And so give us great humility. Give us the love for those in front of us to proclaim that truth. We pray this holiday season that we would celebrate what you've done, but what you're going to do as you return. That you're going to call all of us into your great banquet with every tribe, tongue, and nation to proclaim you as our king. And so we thank you for this glorious good news. We pray that it would be uh, on the tip of our tongues, that our hearts would be overflowing with this truth every day this month as we come right up to Christmas and as we celebrate who you are and what you've done. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.